I think I'm loosened up a little bit now. Get, you just just do, like fight your way through the intro and then I will carry you. I have broad, strong shoulders. I got this. <laughs> <laughs> nice. There we go. The smooth jazz troll. <laughs> All right. Here, here we go. And welcome back to another episode of the Refactored Podcast, where it is our express goal here to suck just a little bit less every day. From the brink of sanity, my name is Chris Tonkinson. And recording, as always, from the basement of the Ivory Tower, my name is Frank Cole. Back from Tech at the Summit, and (laughs) this is episode number 119, recorded Friday, October 27th. Year of our Lord 2023. So if you're going to say it, we got to be at least be specific. Tech at the Gap was the name of the tech, conference. Tech at the Gap. What is, a, did I get it wrong? It's a, it you said matter. Tech at the I got Summit. It wrong. It's okay. It's Summit. all right. Okay. Gap. But it's, tech uh, at the Gap. It's a, mo- it's a modest little uh, uh, conference that happens in Northern Maryland. Uh, they, it takes place at the uh, Rocky Gap Casino and Resort slash Conference Center, which is pretty cool. They have this casino. And the casino sits right on the edge of a state park. And so it Mm -hmm. it abuts a man-made lake. They have all this hiking and it's a casino. So you can walk outside and they've got these, they have this awesome spread outside that you can, you can wander around in nicer weather. It was cold because, you know, it's October, but um, really, really cool little, uh, little shindig uh, aimed at, uh, technology for the you know, vendors and companies in the, in the Northern Maryland area. So it was, I mean, it was a, only a few hundred people. It's not a huge conference, but it was cool. It was a lot of fun. Um, and uh, yeah, gave the talk and invariably when you're preparing one of these things, y- you go through a lot of ideas and a whole bunch of stuff ends up on the cutting room floor. falling off. Yeah. And I had a whole bunch of stuff like that that doesn't get covered in the, uh, in the talk. Um, they did record yeah, it. And your talk was, your talk was uh, cyber shredding, right? Something about a, uh, an infosec metal band. I'm not sure. <laughs> I forget the. Boy, you're just butchering everything here, but I think that one was deliberate <laughs> because it was aimed at me. So sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, I talked about cyber bike shedding, uh, which. Oh, bike shedding. Okay. Bike shedding. And so we talked about what bike shedding is. And I suppose. Uh, phrasing. So uh, cyber bike shedding for anyone who doesn't know comes from uh, Northcote Parkinson. He's the guy who does Parkinson's law. And stop in- the show here. Stop what? the show here what? because I am. I am sick and tired. Not literally. I am sick and tired. There. I stopped the show. I stopped the show. Go ahead. Sick and tired of you constantly shoving in my face the curse of knowledge with your damn phrasing all the time. <laughs> I realized, and you know, it's something that I realized the uh, where I work, we have we have a very diverse workforce in terms of like uh, country of origin specifically, right? Mm-hmm. So we have people that are from that like every well, not Antarctica, but okay, we have people from all over the place. So it's great because I love listening to different accents where like wherever they come from. 
hearing people's life stories, how they came to the United States, because we're healthcare, everybody's in the United States. Anyway, all of this different stuff. I didn't realize until I was in the middle of so many English as a second language speakers, how steeped my language is in idioms. Oh, man. Phrases that make no sense to anybody unless they know that specific combination of words doesn't mean what the words actually mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of the things, I mean, okay, so I stopped the show. What I really should have done was slide one of these across the bar. Last night I was uh, online gaming and we ran, as, as random online gaming conversations tend to be, the conversation went to weird places. Somebody that I was playing with was a math teacher and they people were, on the internet went weird places. Wow. That's yeah, a film headline, at 11, right? right? Yeah, Sports at 11. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we ended up talking about the word orthogonal and oh. how and how in in math, orthogonal just simply means 90 degrees. It's just, you know, it's 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 a turn. That's that's all it is. But it sounds big and fancy. Yeah. But then if you go into our world, orthogonal has a completely different meaning for for programming. I mean, it's it means not, unrelated. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's. It's pseudo related, but it's not, you know, you know, it actually comes from physics. I I don't know if you care about the derivation, but it comes from physics. Yeah. But the same word just means different things. It comes, you're saying the computer science version of orthogonal orthogonality comes from physics. Is that what you mean? Or you mean the word origin of orthogonal comes from physics? Oh, no, I meant in, so I wasn't even, uh, So, so what is the definition of orthogonal in your use case here? Oh, I'm thinking about orthogonality in programming. Yeah. Change one thing without affecting others. You know, Mm -hmm. like if I, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that, yeah. So that, that, that usage actually comes from physics. It comes from, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Because if you, if like, if, if I throw a ball, that motion is described by a parabola in Mm -hmm. presence of gravity and what you do to figure out, okay, if I throw the, and this is like classic high school physics, we're going to trigger a whole bunch of folks into places, dark places they don't want to be. But if I throw a ball at 10 meters per second at a 40 degree angle, where's it going to land? And after how many seconds? Well, the way that you break that problem down into its constituent parts is the orthogonality of the vectors involved. When I, when I launch the ball at that angle at that speed, I can decompose the side to side motion from the up and down motion. Those are orthogonal vectors and they're unrelated. And so that's how you figure out, you know, that's how you do the maths. We, I, so, I, yeah, I, I need, I need a, I need a sounder in the background. That's just like, no, I thought that I thought the yawning and snoozing was like perfect. Oh, no, time. That was perfect. well okay, delivered. Good, good. It was great. As no, you, it was really not, great. Fortunately, you did I not expected trick- something and you really delivered. <laughs> that's, that's what I do, man. I, you you didn't trigger me. You just put me to sleep. You would have triggered me if you did that damn train scenario. I got a train traveling from this one, and it's going seventy miles an hour. And I got another train's going thirty miles an hour. And where where will they be? I don't freaking know. Somewhere in the middle, and hopefully not on the same track. Ask the conductor. Yes, Lana. Right. ask the conductor. <laughs> so anyway. Uh, actually, I want to build on your sidebar a little bit. You know, the the idioms and the idiom. I, I thought you were going to say acronyms. Actually, is where I, what I thought you were going to say. Mm. I I mean, sort of the same difference because it's it's still you're using a term and what the hell does that term mean? 
I we're talking got, about about peculiar to a time or space or people use of language. Yeah. So that applies to acronyms, terms, idioms, all of it. Yeah. Yeah. And so what I have started doing, and I think it's a good practice, and I've seen others do it too. If you if you use an acronym in conversation, unless you know for one hundred percent certainty that everybody at that table knows what that acronym is you immediately precede or proceed use of the acronym with the full term. You, uh-huh. you, it's, it's the only way, because, I mean, it's happened to me. I, I've lost count the number of times where I've been in a call. It happens with salespeople a lot. And I think, honestly, if I'm being, if, if, if I'm being, if I'm being frankly frank, frankly myself. You're being, be your true self. If, I, if I'm being my true self here, I think a lot of times salespeople throw acronyms out there to sound smart, especially if they are oh, yeah. industry specific yep. acronyms and they really don't necessarily know or, or comprehend them. Um, There's a term for that, by the way. There's a term uh, like psychologists come up with a term where like, if you're in a conversation about some domain, uh, people's use of lingo peculiar to that domain will be used as a signal to the conversational partner that they are in the know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Uh So I might say, like, you know, you're in a boardroom and somebody says, oh, yeah, you know, you just drop a word like red team. Well, Mm -hmm. that to somebody that's in InfoSec, they know what red team means. That's a that's a specific term that not many folks outside know. And so you're you're kind of like, oh, I'm in the club. I know the password. I I can speak the language. Yeah, that's 100 percent what salespeople do. Yeah. 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 They do that crap all the time. I don't know what the what the term is for that. But yes, that's 100 percent what happens. Um. But with the with the acronyms now, I've gotten in the habit of of stating whatever the acronym is. It's kind of where I got the idea for for Archer here. Hey, phrasing was just yeah. kind of self checking on. Hey, when we do this, make sure that everyone knows what it is. And and is it likely that eighty percent plus know? Sure, but I don't want to leave those ten percent people out in the cold. And I was writing some documentation the other day, and there were a couple of of acronyms. I'm 100% certain. I know for a fact, there's no confusion about any member of the team about what those terms are. Mm-hmm. I spelled it out. You still did. Then it. did parenthetical quote the short version. Right. Then, and only then, did I use the shortened version throughout the rest of the document. Oh, so like the I first have- time you introduce the term. Yeah. It, and and I, I literally, it's so weird we're talking about this. I literally had the thought process that there is nobody in this company right now who doesn't know what that means. I'm going to spell it out the first time just to make sure. Oh, I, I would. I mean, yes, if you're right. So everything I just said, if you're not 100 percent sure, you should you should give that. I was mm-hmm. talking about speaking it in a, in no, a conversation. The same, yeah, the same applies. No, no, but, in, yeah. but in writing, there's no if I, I spell it out every time because you have no idea where that document's going to go, whose eyes are ultimately it's going to end up in front of. Just make it easier on future mm-hmm. consumers. And, you know, pay it sort of, sort of pay it forward because I, I mean, I, well, but it's less typing. Do you love the people that come up with the excuse of using like shitty variable names or not defining terms because it's less type? It's like, uh, bruh, what do you, what do you do? What you type that slow, get out of here. Yeah. I don't, nonsense. You're I, lazy. Stop. I do it. like descript. I like descriptive variables, but I, there is a, what is my cutoff? I, I don't have an actual cutoff of in terms of number of characters, <laughs> but it's like a, vi- it's a visual thing. 
it has to be descriptive enough. But if I'm starting to just eat the line with the variable somewhere, names, I tr- the cutoff I is somewhere around. If you were writing this in a word doc, you would think about using a semicolon. That's that's right. vaguely where the. <laughs> yeah, I, I, have you have you never done that? I have had code where I'm dealing with a complex issue and I'm coming up with sufficiently descriptive variables, but then I start to do, you know, I start to compute and process on those variables and I'll end up with a line that has, it's just one or two variables, but they get repeated a couple times because of looping or iteration or whatever. Mm-hmm. And the line ends up being 200 characters long just because it's full of, it's got the same variable name three or four times. That's when I go, okay, I need to condense this just like a bit. Like I need to squeeze it back down. But other than that, yeah, I, I like having stuff that you can read it and it's just human words of what the thing represent. That's the best See, way to do it. In those in those Far cases, I don't break because I think I think that's a fairly common situation. I don't break form in those cases. What I will do is I will create a dedicated method for that calculation. I will pass in the long form. And then in that, I'll name that method appropriately. In the method, I will translate those positional variables into X, Y, Z, I, J, K. And then I will, in the doc, in the comment block for that method, I'll write out the math. Like, this is the formula. And then there's a mapping of what the things are, you know, that that way I can I can retain the succinctness of that formula. Because if you're looking at the code, if you're working with the code, you care about the formula, you probably know what it means. But in the consuming code for that method, it still retains its true. Verbosity. Yeah, okay. that's, an, that's another way to do it, especially. And I mean, I, I tried I tried to to avoid doing derivative methods like that purely for readability purposes, because you could argue that you're actually sacrificing readability because now I have to go find that method or function and OK like this method is doing something. So now I have to go and find it and see what it's actually doing. Even if the variable name is descriptive, even if the method name is descriptive, if I really want to see what's going on, I have to go find it. So it, it like yeah. everything. Yeah, we could, we could, we could have a holy war about like, that, but well, I don't, I don't like think everything, it's material. I would say like everything, it's a sliding scale. There is no zero one. There is no right or wrong. It's entirely dependent on the situation. So I think what you're saying is absolutely valid in the right situation. For sure. In both cases, and this is a great example, like we have two people in a room and we've got two opinions on how to do something. Both of us agree that the end goal is legibility of the code in the pursuit of maintainability. Mm -hmm. And both of us agree that meaningful token names are of the utmost importance in that pursuit. And And yet we are coming away with wildly different ways of doing- Yeah, you still have two different things. Right, exactly. Right. I'm surprised we don't have a third opinion in there. Um, yeah, but I love it, that. I love that joke structure. Can I get meta first? I love the joke structure saying like <laughs> about a thing like DevOps, right? This is my, one of the hobby horses, right? DevOps. Yeah. Oh yeah. If you get, if you get four people in a room, you'll have five definitions of DevOps, right? Like oh, that's, yeah. I, yeah. I like, that's a, that's, it usually gets like, <laughs> it gets a laugh like three quarters of the time. Oh man. <laughs> I don't have a laugh track. Maybe I'll add a laugh track. We are f- Far, we are far from the gap at the moment that we need to unwind some of these. That's uh, all right. I, I, I never lose of track of, I do not lose track bars. of our sidebars. I, so I can w- rewind it back up. So the talk was about bike shedding. And Pop in I the had, stack. I had to start with the definition of bike shedding because some people didn't even know what the heck it meant. Even if they've heard the mm. term before, they had no idea what it meant. So bike shedding, for anyone who doesn't know, comes from Parkinson, as in Parkinson's law. He has, there's, there's a whole bunch of them. 
there is actually, there is just the Parkinson's law, but that's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about, bike shedding comes from the Parkinson's law of triviality. And that his point is that that is the tendency of people to devote a lot of time to unimportant details and leave the really important stuff unattended. And in his yeah, writing, the time spent on a problem is inversely proportional to the importance of the problem, right? Yeah, yeah. All, but there's there is actually a distinction. The um, because oh, is there? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is a uh, crap. Light on, on me. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm trying to remember. So, um, yeah, Parkinson's law of triviality, not to be confused with um, Parkinson's law. Uh, now, Parkinson's law is the the work expands to fit expands the time a lot. Yes, that's that's yeah. Parkinson's law. So Parkinson's law of triviality is devoting a lot of time to unimportant stuff and leaving the important stuff unattended. In his writing, the example he gives is a committee that's building a nuclear power plant, and they spend an inordinate amount of time talking about the materials and definitions for the bike shed next to the nuclear power plant instead of focusing on the thing that they actually should. Which is the nuclear power plant? Even if it, even yeah. if you spend one to one ratio wise the same amount of time on both, that's doing the nuclear power plant stuff a disservice because it's a stupid bike shed. Like this, it's yeah. it's completely unimportant. It's it's in, it's trivial. So you know when we say that we are bike shedding something, it means that we're talking about something that is definitely tangential and definitely less important than the thing that we actually should be talking about. It yeah. happens. All the freaking time. And so what my the point of the talk was inside of cybersecurity, there are things that we can get uh, distracted by in cybersecurity instead of doing the important stuff. And so I was calling yeah. out, hey, if you find yourself doing these things, stop that. That's a waste of time. Here's the thing to look out for and here's where to go. So that was the point of the talk. But anyway, I'm not going to rehash the talk here. I'm actually, I ha there is a recording. As soon as I get it, uh, I'll pop it onto my site and we'll link it over in the show. Uh, so it'll, it'll live there in, in perpetuity. The thing I wanted to talk about today was there was some other cool stuff that I wanted to talk about, but there wasn't enough time and it wasn't on point, but it was a bunch of information that I had generated. And so one of the things that I had talked about or had, I had thought about talking about was how cybersecurity folks get along or don't get along with their IT and software development, software engineering counterparts, the friction that that happens there, because those things can actually be, um, you know, your, your, your interact, your interpersonal interactions can become a, a, a huge time waster as well. And the point I was going to make, uh, the, was that you can, there, it's fairly easy to see what the other side of the fence is doing. And in doing so, it makes you better at your at your own job. So even if you don't do the job, understanding the nuance of it makes you a better technician for whatever you do. And so I came up with a list of three things for uh, a, a set of three for IT and dev and a set of three things for cybersecurity folks of a th uh, consisting of one, a thing to study, a thing to do, and a thing to use to make you better at understanding and interacting and engaging with the other side of the equation. So I I thought we could just run through the list today. I thought this would be would be kind of fun. Yeah. Um so all right, on the IT and development side, thing to study was the OWASP top 10 list. 
And mm. you and I are probably like, well, yeah, I mean, you should, I mean, it's almost a requirement. You should do that. You should do that, period. That's that's a responsibility as a developer. But then you and I both know that not all developers think that way. And it's really important to understand the vulnerabilities. And I think the the funniest thing, what I find most inter, uh, humorous in a dark way about the OWASP top 10 list is the reaction that an engineer might have to seeing the vulnerabilities and understanding them in the context of their own ecosystem, depending on how good they are or, or maybe more accurately, how much experience they have, you know, the reaction, even if they, even if they've been a programmer for a while and they've never really been exposed to the OWASP top 10 list, a good, I'll put it in quotes, you know, philosophically, a, a philosophically, you know, perfect world, good engineer is going to look at the OWASP top 10 vulnerabilities and go, oh yeah, of course I'm going to protect against that kind of stuff because they understand, you know, the, the, the nuance of it, you know, most, an easy example would be, um, um, it, in, uh, code injection, you know, like uh, submitting a form and you're dropping some, some nasty, um, SQL or something like that in there to try and, you know, break the database or break the server or something like that. You know, it's, it's one of the number one things and it will probably forever remain one of the number one things. And, you know, so a, a, a good engineer is going to look at it and go, well, yeah, duh. I mean, I didn't know this list existed, but yeah, this, of course I'm going to protect against that. And then a, you know, newer junior engineer. Oh yeah. Oh, that is, oh, that is possible. That is bad. I should, I should definitely do that. Right. <laughs> So I don't know. OWASP, I, as a, as a, as a, here's my only problem with the OWASP top 10. It has gotten more abstract over the years and that's an intentional true, move. Yeah. The categories, it used to be, you know, SQL injection. It used to be more specific. Forgery. They more, were more specific. Very, yeah, there were very specific, actionable, tangible things that it recommended. And what they've done over time is they've said, okay, well, this is the top 10 list, right? They may start with 300 different issues. They're just picking the top 10. Mm -hmm. What they've done over time is they've said, oh, yeah, number two. But that's also really conceptually similar to number 27, 39, 42, 43, and 84. And mm -hmm. so we're actually going to combine those, essentially bringing those lower numbered issues up into visibility, broaden the category to be inclusive, and then we've actually covered more ground this way. And it it becomes less actionable though like, because it's so generalized. It, it it does. It's not that it's not actionable because it's still a good framework to go through. It's still a mental check pardon me, it's still a mental checklist to go through. The issue is like a newer developer can't look at it and know what to look for. Right. I'm not saying it's a bad move. What I'm saying is that over the years, especially the last revision or two, OWASP top 10 is more a tool for security program managers than it is a desktop reference for developers. Yeah, it's, it has become less of that. And you, you get more of the actionable stuff now from a lot of the SAST and DAST. Hey, phrasing! Static application security testing, dynamic application security testing. Basically, I'm looking at the code from the inside. I'm looking at the application from the outside. That's the difference between SAST and DAST. Um, you get a lot of that practical for, for, for some vendor. For a lot of them, they include libraries and background of, here's the vulnerability. Here's what you're doing. Here's why it's bad. Here's what could happen. 
and they get yeah. that more concrete bit. Uh, I, I, I agree with you. I think the OWASP list ha- has gotten more generalized. I pulled it up while we were talking about it. And it's like insecure object reference. So and, number and, one is, know. yeah, yeah. Broken access control, cryptographic failure, injection. That's the one I'm sort of talking about, but it's just injection. Yeah. It's not what kind right. of injection and what scenario. Um, security misconfiguration. Well, what the no, hell does that mean? Yeah, exactly. Right? Like, wait, wait, hold on a second. Hold on. Wait, 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 wait. Are you telling me if I leave the door open and unlocked, people are going to walk through it? Oh my God. <laughs> just, just deep, deep stuff here. <laughs> so it's a little, I agree, I'm agreeing with you. It's, it's a little too broad. And then way at the bottom, number, num, number 10 came from the community survey server side request forgery. It's probably the most concrete of everything in the top 10. <laughs> is the, is the but isn't that broken access control, essentially? It, yeah, it, it, it can't right? be. Like, I mean. Uh, well, I mean, aren't all of these things sort of interrelated? When they were, like, how big, how, how broad is this right. Venn diagram? Sure. I mean, right. I like, is, isn't all of this security misconfiguration? And that's why, that, and that's, and that's why to me, it has become a less useful tool as yeah. the years have gone on. Not that it, not that it isn't as useful, not that it doesn't have value. For me as a developer, as a manager of developers, I do not look at it as much anymore. Yeah, I, 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 I just agree. don't. Because that information is now available. Like I said, it is now available. The concrete, here's what to do, here's what not to do. It, it has sort of moved. Like that information is still available, but it's, it's, it's in other places now, like I was talking about. Um, so anyway, that's the yeah, thing. and also the fixes in other places. So oh, so well, let's yeah, let's follow that example, fixes. right? These never have the the, the top ten list doesn't have fixes because they they speak in such generalized terms. All you can say is don't do that. Like so, well, so, but you're saying that you're saying the specific actionable, practical insights you can get out of tools that we didn't have twenty years ago. That's true. Yeah, that's that's largely true. Right, like dynamic is kind of newer. Right, we've had some of these, but they weren't as available. They weren't as right. cheap. They weren't as accessible. They weren't as intelligible. Uh, if you look at where the problems are coming from, like where is the actual solution to these issues, like SQL injection, SQL I. If you're using an ORM, you basically don't have to think about it anymore. Use the ORM. Don't write SQL. Just do not write SQL in your application, and you are not vulnerable to SQLi because your ORM yeah. is automatically going to use parameterized queries, which obviates any attempt at SQLi. So, like when you're when the the frameworks, right? So, if you're talking about you know .NET and Rails and uh, the, the or like entity Drupal, framework and Active Record, right? There, these these frameworks and libraries have put a lot of time and effort and money into yep. solving these issues. So just use the framework and then these things go away. And then you start to see like, oh, well, is that why OWASP got more generic? Because SQLi isn't as much of a problem, but it is a broader category of things that you still need to be aware. Like, and that's why I say it, you're, it's you're, not that it doesn't have value. You're making a chicken it's egg just, argument really more than anything, it sounds like. That, you know, we've gotten we've gotten better, so the list has gotten more broad or more generic because we've gotten better basically but are we, did we yeah. get better because of the list specificity or did we just simply get better and the list reacted that's what i'm so um but i mean self-fulfilling prophecy that because the list got popular because it was practical people paid attention fixed the issues now the list has to change to remain relevant there's anyway. 
Yeah, but oh, that's just it. OWASP is is a nonprofit. I mean, I, I okay, so I that's all right. I, I argued myself right out of it because I worked for a nonprofit and it's still a business and they still need to have eyeballs and be mm-hmm. successful. So yeah, they oh. still have a vested interest in in keeping things that are top of mind and and it's a. I mean, they they've got a hook in there. OWASP top ten, like you know what that meant that means if you're in talk in the about bike shedding. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, so that was the thing to study on IT and dev. On the cybersecurity side, the thing to study I picked was Git. All right, because mm-hmm. if you're going to understand anything about whatever your team is doing on the on the technical development side, I mean, it's all going to start with Git. And I do I, I do say that's a good fit for IT or software development counterparts because so much of IT now is defined programmatically. You know, you've got yeah. YAML files and config scripts and, you know, groovies and, you know, Jenkins configs, all kinds of stuff that are all programmatic values. And if your IT team is worth its salt, it's storing those in a, in in a, in a version control system. And so understanding that foundational element of how programming gets done, writing the file, saving, doing the commit, how shares work, you don't have to do it all the time, but knowing that I think is really, really valuable. And I, I've seen evidence of this. The team that I work with today, the, the, the threat team, the, all of their definitional work is all done in Git. And when they hire mm-hmm. threat analysts and researchers, a lot of them come in, they have no freaking clue what Git is yep. or how it works. Which yeah. at, at first glance, I went, are you kidding me? Like, th- this is this, like... You're doing such technical stuff. How do you not know about getting version saw, control? But it's a, it's a completely different world for them. I, I saw a meme, uh, like a, uh, what is this? Uh, funny, like a cartoon. Uh, what are they called? Like the, like the funny cartoons from like a newspaper. Wow, what are they? Uh, like comics? a comic thing. Yeah, they did newspaper um, comics. I, it was yeah. like a, it was like a single frame comic I saw the other day, and it was like, oh, um, steps, uh, steps for a beginner to get into information security, cybersecurity, whatever they called it. Mm-hmm. And it was a guy looking at a, like a, like a set of like an escalator that was going up and he was taking a step. And the first step was like uh, software development fundamentals. And then there was network fundamentals. And then there was uh, infrastructure fundamentals. And like, he kept like the, the thing was just kept going up in his stick. He couldn't stride that long <laughs> to make the first step. <laughs> and that's kind of what, you know, yeah, like, it, it's, it's just, it, it is a foundational thing that it, I think you should definitely be, uh, definitely have understanding of. And if you're, if you're in cybersecurity, it will, not only does it help you understand the process, but it actually makes, uh, it will give you more mental accessibility to the stuff that they're doing. So if you're, if you're actually responsible for the cybersecurity processes, if you have some innate understanding of how Git works, you can get into the code and kind of look around at things. You may not understand yeah. all the technical nuance, but you can see who did what when, and you can see mm-hmm. the files that, you know, where it might be applicable. You can learn to do a Git blame. And, and if you've got some rudimentary understanding, you can, you know, maneuver around it. It's, it becomes helpful. So, all right. So those are the things to study. Uh, I'm going to go, th- let's do thing to use because I already started this one on the IT and dev side. Uh, I mentioned SAST and DAST earlier. I think that is absolutely a great tool to pick up for software developers. Um, 
This is a newer conclusion that I'm coming to. It's not something that I have had opportunity to do myself, but the next time I have a dev team, I am going to do this because there are cheaper, ver- there, a lot of them are premium, a lot of them are paid, but there are open source options available uh-huh. and there are cheaper options, but you also don't need to be cheap about it if you don't want to. These tools typically fall into the cybersecurity realm. These usually are, there's usually a security person who's pushing to do this kind of stuff. Yeah. I think these are great for the same reason that we just talked about with the OWASP top 10 and the gen- the generics of it. These are great tools to put like way left, like shift these way mm-hmm. left, put these on your local dev box. Don't report the results. Like that's, that's the key. I think for these things, use them for your local development. And when you find something, fix it keep the loop on who sees those test results, those, those scores to yourself, if, if at all possible. Um, because if those reports end up going out to a cybersecurity team, depending on the size and complexity of that team, you might trip off a whole litany of security remediation that is utterly irrelevant to what you're doing because you're in dev because it's so early. I actually consulted with a with a, a large healthcare company. If you're if you're running those things locally, I think we've I think we might have thought about that before. Well, right, but even if you're not running them, even if the tool, okay, so let's say you have a premium tool, right? And so you have a single running instance that your team has generalized access to, and you can just tap it whenever you want to. Okay. Mm-hmm. In that situation, it would be there's a higher likelihood that a security person could see what's going through that scanner and see the results and things like that. And if something really trips the trigger, oh no, this is, you know, this is a huge vulnerability. Um, I'm, I'm simply talking about avoiding that situation. That's why I suggested running it locally, but if you don't run it locally, you, you still want to try and keep that, that circle small. The distinction here is that, as the code moves forward in maturity, so as you get closer to production, that reporting should get more visibility from others to the point, mm-hmm. up, right up to that point where it goes right, right before it goes out to production, run the report, and it should be reviewed and cleared by your, by your security folks. You know, like yeah. that should happen. But it's, a, it, again, everything's on a sliding scale here. If I'm in development, it's still a super useful useful tool, but I don't and I don't think a lot of organizations or a lot of engineers use it the way that I'm describing it because of the problem that I'm describing. Because it comes from cybersecurity and when they run it and something's caught, alarm bells go off and it creates a whole bunch of headache for them that just you know what? Screw it. It's it's useful, but you're making my life and my job harder, so I'm not going to use it. That's the thing that I think is is bad here. And that's why I think it's a good tool, but it's got to be, I don't know, couched, contained, controlled, defined uh, in order to make that happen. And that's a, you know, that's a coordinated effort, especially if the tool was originally brought in and managed by your cybersecurity team. But it's really, really useful if you shift it left. Um, so I, that's why I added it to the list. Uh, anything to add on that? Does that make sense? Yeah, I've never, I'm never, I'm, I don't, 
I, do, do you want to do you want to fight for a second? Because I sure, I yeah. Don't. If you disagree, yeah, absolutely. I didn't bring this up so I can monologue, man. Just for the sake of literally the sake of argument, I'm going to go out on a limb and say I actually don't like shift left. The term or the uh, concept? It's buzzing. To, to the extreme, right? When okay. we say shift, in my mind, when I say shift left, that does not mean it extends to the developer's laptop. I find that can be useful and it can be a boondoggle to try to get it that far. I will start on the right and move all the way to the left until things are hitting like the shared Git repository. So let me, let me make this example like yeah, more concrete. Example I know that's here, kind of yeah. abstract. So uh, using, using a tool like a FOSA or a sneak or any of these kind of uh, yep. scanning tools, There's right? A bunch of them, okay. Yeah. So it's a, so it's a cloud service. There's local plugins, but whatever we have it running, we have it running in CI. And so my recommendation would be, okay, hook this up into CI and one of the gates to your builds, right? Because we always talk about automated tests being a build gate, right? The security scanning and the license compliance, because that's the thing a lot of companies are concerned about now, right? Um, those things should also be build gates. I wouldn't necessarily blow up a build pipeline for a developer who's just pushed a new story branch to Git, right? Mm -hmm. I'd report in warn mode, hey, here's some stuff that was found. Where I would gate it is, and, and, and again, I'm in, right now I'm in healthcare. So what I would do, and, and this is peculiar to your company's policies, blah, 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 blah. what I would do is I would say, okay, pull requests of release branches into main. They gate on, in the case of uh, like a sneaker, a FOSA, mm -hmm. they should block if there's a new like critical or high vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And I would start there. I would say, okay, we're going to introduce this process. When you go and send a pull request to main, if the tool finds a crit or a high, we're going to block the build. You're not going to be able to, you're not going to be able to accept the PR. You got to fix that, but you're not going to introduce a new critical vulnerability to main. I don't think that's an insane policy. That's mm -hmm. where I would start. And then I'd say, okay, does this make sense to shift left again? And probably does. Do we block or do we warn? Right. And all the way to the left until every time a developer's pushing a commit for their feature branch, they're getting probably, you know, warn mode at that point, right? Sure. Where you draw yeah. the line in between, you know, I don't care. I'm not going to allow a, a new crit into main. I'm, I'm not going to block a developer pushing a story branch. So, you know, everybody's right. going to draw the yeah. line in between on their I own. I mean, what you're saying, I think is right, reasonable and rational and probably. I'm not going to waste. Thing. Yeah. I'm not going to waste any time trying to figure out how to get that scanner to run on a local laptop. Oh, For me, that's no value I see in what it. you're saying. I, you're, and okay. there's two, there's two things there's because again, shift left. Usually if you take that at like the, there's not a textbook. If you take like the, the canonical sort of conversational definition, shift left ends with it lives in the IDE. Now yeah. there can be value yeah. to having security related insights in your IDE feet, real time feedback, right? We can underline something. If a variable's undefined, we can highlight something. If you've got invalid syntax, why can we not have something pop up in the sidebar that says, hey, it looks like you're allowing insecure object reference here? That's wonderful, mm -hmm. right? As a me, as a, as, a, as a leader within my company, knowing our constraints on time and budget and priorities and everything else we have going on, A, 
to me, there's no ROI because solving to get these reports, get this configured in CI is one thing. Solving to put that in the IDE is like a whole separate project that's equally as challenging. Right. I don't find ROI there. And number two, Git is the only thing I ever want to require of a developer on their local laptop. Yeah. I want you to have as much flexibility. If you want to use ZSH and Vim all day long, brother, power to you. If you want a <laughs> Windows box with Visual Studio Enterprise, that's your that's your flavor of of ice cream, right? Like I don't I hate putting impositions on the developer's workflow and and local ergonomics. So for that reason, I also kind of reject the idea. Now, there are some projects, there are a lot of software projects where you you have to make requirements on the local station. Like that's to the degree that I don't have to, I don't like doing it. Right. Okay. So I see what you're saying. You were making an argument for the lift required to get these things actually running. And my right. point was not, I was thinking more uh, higher level. I was, I was more macro level, not thinking about the necessarily impl implementation, just the concept of I have this thing that I can use oh, yeah. to check my code. In an ideal world, it is just like any of our other menagerie of tools that we run locally. It's a thing that I can install and I push a button and it gives me results or it doesn't. And it's just mm -hmm. there if I want it. It's there if you don't. Yeah. So I'm totally in agreement on making it an option as opposed to a mandate. Right. As far as the ideal that I'm describing, I'll be honest, I'm not sure a whole lot of tools would meet the description of what I'm going for. I mean, to your point about the lift. I think a lot of them actually are made to live inside the pipeline and they belong there too, but I, I see a value in the, in the tighter loop. I don't have to yeah. wait for my commit and I don't have to wait for my commit and then make changes and, and, and then go again, because maybe I made that change hours or days ago. And the sooner yeah. I can find out about it, the less backtracking I have to do. I think there's value in, mm -hmm. in doing that as well. So, but, but the tools that, that exist today, I don't think that they, they're not made for that reality yet. But as we go they're further and further on there. the shift left thing, I think you're yeah. going to see stuff end up in like the, the open source stuff is the, they're the ones that are going to land here first. You're going to end up with, I'm going to have my Git, I'm going to have my local Git install. And I'm going to have my local, you know, SAST tool install. And maybe mm -mm. I use it, maybe I don't or something like that. So here's how, here's how I see that going, because you've seen this shift. And I, I just had that whole monologue. That's the way I think about the world. Well, it's, it is I mean, changing. that's how it exists. That's, that's the reality. It's, it's changing. In the, last, in the last few years, it has actually become possible to very easily extend all of those tools into the developer environment. And it's the second requirement I would make of a local developer's laptop. The first being Git, the second being Docker. Yeah. Friggin' magic, buddy. Friggin' magic. Oh, yeah. Because if you yeah. design, I still start from the right. And this is where I think I, I probably lose. But I still start from the right. I am going to gate main. If you issue a PR to main and you have a broken test or a crit that's identified, you're not, the PR is not like, you're not going to accept the PR. You can't get it done. Okay. Work that process left. If you design and this, this, when you say the open source folks are going to get there first, they're already there. They already beat, right? Because 
when you configure your build pipeline, you configure your CI environment, mm-hmm. configure that so that all of these processes run in containers. Then when you're shifting left, when you make that jump from a story branch on the central server down to the developer's laptop, now you have encapsulated everything you need to allow the developer to, re- to open up a terminal and type test and they can get all the same feedback using all the same tools that run in the full CI environment thanks to the magic of Docker. So that's where, you know, that whole monologue I just had, that's where that starts to change. Uh, I would love to make that available to developers should they want it. Um, They shouldn't have to do it. I shouldn't have to spend effort deploying or supporting that capability. But if I've designed, in my mind, I'm going to make a value statement here. If I've designed the CI system the right way, it's not a big lift to give them the capability. And then to your point, hack, 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 make a change, save the file, run the suite, run the scanner, run the tests, run. I mean, this is why for, I don't know, about 110 billion years, everybody's been hyper-focused not just on test coverage, but how quickly your test suite runs. Because the faster it runs, the more you're going to run it, the more value you're going to get from it. Yeah, exactly. And that the more you run it and the low, the more direct you are to your code. That's really my point. Like you, you, you ended where I started. If I can run it locally on the code that I am building right now, I can head off a problem yeah. before it even exists and before anyone needs to know about it, before I even have to do anything about it. Oh, I see what I did there. Fix, fix, fix. Done. It's, yeah. it, this is, it's almost like a tech debt uh, case that I'm making because if I fix it now, as opposed to right before production or after it's in production, it's, it's much faster, easier yeah. and, and less painful. Um, so I mean, it's the reason, it's the reason that your PHPs, your Pythons, your Rubies caught up in the first place because you write and run. You don't have to wait for a compiler. It's the exact same problem. It's the yeah. exact same thing. It, it, it is. And, and I think that this is a thing that is not yet local dev toolkit or it's getting there. It's getting there. And I'm trying to yeah. push it in that direction because I do think it's super duper valuable. All right. Yeah. So that's the thing to use for IT and devs if you want to understand your cybersecurity counterparts. Thing to use for cybersecurity to better understand dev. I actually picked chat DPT because if you are, we've been talking about AI a lot lately. Um, for good generative reason. AI, Gen- <laughs> AI, 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 generative AI, generative AI, generative shut AI. up, Sundar. So, ChatGPT is a great place to get because of how programming languages work, because they are defined, they have scope, and AI can understand them almost soup to nuts, com- completely and inherently. You can ask very complicated questions for of a program for for programming and get the right answer almost the first time every time with, with ChatGPT. So if I'm a cybersecurity expert and I'm trying to understand the code or the things that my team is building, ChatGPT is going to have your answers. You're not going to need to probe the forums for pseudo-related things or stack overflow. You just say, how do I write code that does X, Y, Z and in Python, in Ruby, in C Sharp, and you'll get an, a returned example. Didn't, didn't Stack just lay off a bunch of folks? And I think it has nothing to do with the macroeconomics. I think it has everything to do with you the fact the that AI. utilization of their platform has dropped. Well, th- I think there's some utilization that has dropped, but I also think that, well, I, I mean, they've also bought in after Stack Overflow, the, the acquiring company, the parent company who owns it now, 
they've been pushing for more AI generated results. Mm -hmm. The community has been fighting them. They want to do what they've always done. And I know well, that which is which is increasingly just shouting down new posts as duplicate. <laughs> that's a stupid question. <laughs> duplicate, duplicate. You don't know anything. Go. You didn't search anything. Stupid idiot. So yes, the, the, and they've yeah. I would say that the Stack Overflow uh, answering community has backed themselves into that corner a little bit by being a little too aggressive yeah. on shouting down newbie questions. ChatGPT is just a better platform for this because you can ask a specific question and get a specific answer unique to your situation. And so if you're trying immediately. to- Immediately. Immediately, it's tailored to you, tailored to the scenario that you're asking. No. And then you can follow up and you can hone and refine it. It's a great learning tool to learn a new programming language, to learn new tactics and techniques, as long as it's documented. And for a cybersecurity professional who's trying to understand, help to learn to understand the basics of the programming stuff that their that their development teams or their IT teams are already using, ChatGPT is going to have all your answers. So just go in there and ask, and you'll get that stuff. So if you're super, useful. if you're a if you're a fan of Visual Studio Code, look at cursor.sh, cursor.so, cursor cursor.sh. Cursor yeah, we talked about now. it a couple weeks. ago. We talked about it found. a few weeks ago. Yep. It's got it's 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 VS Code, but like Command K brings up your AI uh, junior dev and you can you can abuse AI, them with AI. questions. Sorry. <laughs> um, and you can pay them for the sub or you can put in your own open AI keys. And it I've used it now. I, it's a decent experience. I don't I don't love VS code, but it's it's a decent experience. It's a, experience, it's a little more yeah. ergonomic than having uh, web based GPT in a window and then copying and pasting for, code in. But for a but for a cybersecurity professional who's just learning and not necessarily living in VS Code anyway. Just go to the Chat GPT prompt online. You'll find tons of answers there. It's 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 phenomenal. Um, all right. So there's the thing to study, thing to use, thing to do. Last one on the IT and Dev side. Uh, one of my favorite tools, techniques, I'll say, for improving the security of my systems, whatever they are, whether it's my own software that I'm writing or the systems that that software is running on or the network that I built for the for the this thing is to go to Google type in the word hardening and then <laughs> whatever I'm trying to improve the security of it can be a yeah. it can be a framework it can be a network appliance it can be apache a, a so it can be you know part of my core infrastructure it can be literally anything you just yeah. type that in and you will find this is one area where traditional searching actually works in your favor because you don't have a set goal in mind. You actually want to see the, the scope of yeah. you know, what's out there. Um, you want to browse. You want to see, you kind of want to browse. You'll get a ton of stuff and you'll find, find low hanging fruit, find easy things to do, and then just go do them and just improve yeah. the security of your, of your infrastructure it, with, with almost without even thinking in doing so you're obviously you're, you're, you're now more resilient. You're also learning about what hardening, what secure, you know, what secure looks like. So even if you have little to no foundational conceptualization of what security is or what its security looks like, by simply going through the motions of hardening the various pieces, you build that. Like you build the yeah. image as you as you go along. So super handy tool. Um, have you done that before? Done anything like that? 
no, I have a few Google hacks that are kind of standbys. I've not, I've not done that. Yeah. That one's really That's, good. I might yeah. next time I have something, I, I, I probably will. Any, anytime you've identified, Hmm, we should, you know, this is a, I wonder if this is weaker than it should be. Just hardening the th- hardening widget. You'll find all kinds of cool stuff. Um, yeah. All right. And then the thing to do for cybersecurity folks is pair programming. I think that as a cybersecurity professional, especially if you really have little to no direct involvement, uh, one thing I did learn doing the research for the talk, something like 70% of the current cybersecurity workforce comes from IT. So mm-hmm. a lot. It makes, makes sense. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. Yep. Um, so that's IT, not software development. Cybersecurity covers both. So if you're more on the IT side and you want to learn more about the software development side, or if you're one of these younger, fresher faces that doesn't uh, really have any direct involvement with IT or cybersecurity or, or software development, <clears throat> sitting next to a person as they're doing their work and just poking them with questions as you go. It's a fantastic way to learn because you can fastest just, way to annoy them. Oh, sorry, <laughs> I, you went a different direction. It's true. No, it's true. It's true. You, this you is need not to ask th- permission first. Correct. <laughs> this is something that you have to set up and schedule. You have to find someone who's willing to take you on and to answer your questions. There has to be. A Here's record. the thing, though. Like we have all known the like the BFOHs. We've all known like the crabby admins and the the cantankerous senior devs. I don't know if ever in my entire professional experience have I approached another technologist and said, hey, I'm curious. I don't know that much. Uh, I'm trying to upskill. Like whatever the prefix is to this question, Mm -hmm. would you mind teaching me about, would you mind showing me this? Can I shadow you? Can I ask some questions? Can I see how you think about Never. Yeah, have I gotten told off for this? And we love, there's nothing more alpha nerd than telling somebody else something they didn't know, right? Instructing and that's them when on you what you do someone you do it. With, yeah. with open hands, when you go with an open mind and say, hey, can you help me understand this better? What did you do? What was your process? What do you recommend? How do you think about this? How do I learn? Can you teach me? We may be we may be crusty and cranky on the outside, but we're soft and gooey on the inside. We love helping people. <laughs> Just ask. You'll make somebody's day. The only time it's, it's ever been like if the person yeah. literally does not have the hours in the day, and even then, they'll probably try to make them for you, right? Like, yeah, for sure. Now, it, this is I, I do want to specify. When I talk about pair programming. I am talking about it as a tutorial learning opportunity, which I always Mm. think is the biggest strength of pair programming. There are companies out there that will work day to day. They'll do pair programming as a, as a, as a structure. Mm -hmm. I am, I'm not a fan of that. Um, I have not, I never have been. Well, I have, I know it's unpopular, but I've never have been. Well, I I haven't done, I, I have to caveat for full disclosure. I have not worked in a company that mandated it and I did it day in and day out, 40 hours a week. That, that, that I've never done that. What I have done is opportunistically pair programmed around challenging problems, um, uh, upskilling the way that we're talking about or, or, or ramping up new employees and doing things like that. And what I have found is the knowledge transfer between the two people is amazing. You get a, it is an amazing way to learn. What I 
don't find is a whole lot of efficiency in actually getting work done. Now, as a company, I can see why some companies are- Well, I think there's an- there's like an immediate versus a long tail argument yes. to be made in terms of yeah. that efficiency, right? Yeah, because, which is normally where that goes, right? And that's why I was going to say with the company, a company might have interest in really pushing that because I, if I have two people doing it, there's no single point of failure on the code that gets written. I actually have two bodies that were directly involved in. It. And so the, ar- the argument I, I, I is that. like my, working that way just sucks, though. I I don't find that to be very enjoyable or effective. Yeah. The, the value personally. proposition for the organization is, yeah, you avoid single points of failure and, and single brains of failure specifically. Right. Yeah. Um, and the argument, and there's, there's, I think evidence to support this, that the resulting software is just better. It's better documented. It's more well-written. It's more maintainable. It has less, less fewer errors, right? But like there are quality metrics that, that you can see pairing does improve. Yeah. Uh, it's not, it's not, I don't know. And maybe I'm just, I have an onion on my belt. I don't know. Um, I've never, I would much, a lot of the times where we avoid, like if I've seen pair programming exercises where something bad was not just like, okay, there are marginal improvements to the code quality. That's, and that's, that's admirable. I don't have a problem with that. Mm -hmm. Like where you've seen, oh, wow, we really avoided something bad because we had two people on it. Those things usually they should have been solved at the architecture and design and analysis phase of the project. Yeah. Like, like that's my thinking that like you I and I I almost refuse to go off into a dark room and do analysis and architecture and design work. Like the collaboration there is worth tenfold what you put into it. Yeah. Once you have something, you understand the architecture, you understand how it impacts your solution environment. And then you've got the design discussion solved. You're usually not left with very many hard problems that even even a, even a newcomer would would meaningfully struggle in a, in an outsized way on. So you 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 said the design, and I actually thought you were going to say testing because I, I agree with what you're saying. I I also think the things that you might miss that you would catch with two brains that you might miss with one. You you would still probably catch those things. One good design, like you said, but two, write more tests. Just more tests. How many mm-hmm. tests? As many as you more. can <laughs> and feel comfortable. To, you know, I, I love Kent Beck's definition. You know, enough to feel to reach a certain level of confidence on the code yeah. that you're writing. And if you have the cycles to do more tests, then just do more tests because the more of those you have, the your code will be more secure, more stable, more resilient. Guaranteed every single time. I I have lost count of the number of times where I had code that I thought was fine. And then I ran my test suite and something broke. And it was an old test. It was a test I hadn't touched in months, maybe. And it's like, Mm -hmm. why is this breaking? Oh, because this, 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 and this. Oh, geez. Yeah, that would have been terrible for it to get out into, into production. So- Tests pay for themselves so many times over. It's not even funny. And nobody sees it outside of the the immediate developers. That's why nobody 
I literally had a conversation about that this week. There's a we have a system and it's it's under tested. We've got some it's but but we're we got we got some work. We have an opportunity, right? You can't call anything a problem. This is not just career advice for the youngins out there. <laughs> Nothing is ever a problem. There's Nothing is ever an issue, right? You have opportunities, right? This is how you speak to a board. You don't say um, no but, you say yes and. Yes like, and, right? Yes yeah, and. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> uh yes and go um so <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, what the heck was I saying uh, with the with the testing? Literally had the conversation this week. Okay, we have a system that's under test. It's an opportunity to to add testing rigor to the system. I said, okay, how do we actually start it? We're not going to get three sprints to halt production to backload a bunch of tests. That's not you're that gonna never get, happens. No job. Never. No happens. jobs. No. What no. we can do though is that we can ensure that as a group, we understand what the expectations, rules, libraries, frameworks, and methodologies for our testing are. We can make sure as a as senior members of the team that the system works as intended. And then when a new feature comes in, we verify that it has tests included with it. And this is the, and actually in the conversation, I started in the reverse order. I said, first, whenever we have a bug, we require that tests are added because the worst thing you can yep. do in front of a client is have them tell you that something that they already told you was broken and you fixed is broke again. Yeah. That is a horrible thing to do to your, to your clients. So to avoid regressions, which are like tantamount to cardinal sins from a, from yeah, a client standpoint, from a yeah. user standpoint, to avoid regressions, every bug should have tests to cover it. And then I said, and and new features should have tests too, right? Like that was almost an afterthought because the thing that I've been burned by before are regressions. Um, so like every bug that comes in, every feature, this, we just have to make sure that tests were added. Now, they're not always going to be complete. They're not always going to be comprehensive. They're not going to catch everything, but a little bit of rigor and you're going to find that 80, 90, 95% of your problems evaporate and yeah. we can manage the rest in a really rational, calm way without everybody losing their mind because this is the nth one in X number of days, you know? Exactly. Yeah. The best way to get started with testing is to just do it is to just, just is to just start it and set up the framework and just be iterative, be opportunistic, add things as you touch code. Yeah. That's all you can do. I mean, and, and what gets into the code base, I mean, really, you don't even have to worry about putting it into your pipelines and all that other crap. If you can run the test suite locally and then you just store the tests that you write in a slash test folder or something like that on the repository, that's good enough. Yeah, it's even, ugly and broke, but you'll get more sophisticated and mature over time. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna yell at my team if they're not in the pipeline, but like even, okay, we're gonna do a release. It's somebody's job to go check out the version and run the tests. Like that can be that simple. It doesn't have to be overcomplicated. No, it, for it, sure. it really doesn't. So, so there you go, IT devs and cybersecurity, things to study, do, and use in your in your daily life and get you better at understanding the other side. And honestly, you know, the the the, the dirty little secret here is it actually makes you better at, at your day job. It doesn't just make you better at understanding your security or, or your software development counterparts. I thought you were gonna say the dirty little secret is that the other side doesn't understand their side. Well, I mean, there's that too, <laughs> yes. I mean, we, we are all, yes, we are we're all, all pretending. Yes, we are all brainless meat sacks stumbling around in the dark. Like if you really want to go full full on <laughs> Aristotelian philosophy, I, here, I am I not a I am not a brainless meat sack. I have a brain, but it's like a TV with no signal. <laughs> <laughs> so, what do you guys think? What would you have put in my list instead of the things that I put? I would love to hear how I'm wrong. So, 
let us know. Feedback. Feedback at refactor.work. You can check out the show, the show notes, the back catalog, all the stuff we talked about talking about uh, cursor.so. We talked about that a few weeks ago. You can find that old episode on our website, refactor.work is where you can find all that good stuff. If you want to see my writing, you can go to hotcoles, K-O-E-H-L-S.com. And if you want to check out Chris, he's at chris.tonkinson.com. And this has been episode 119 of the Refactor podcast recorded on October 27th, 2023. Take it easy, Chris. Thanks, Frank.